0: Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey.
1: Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Godillo, and Jason Russell are principals of Resolve Asset Management. Due to
2: industry regulations, they will not discuss any of Resolve's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by the principals are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast
3: is for information purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com.
0: Cheers to Friday Night Drinks. Cheers. To the What's everyone drinking? First episode of Resolve Riffs. What am I drinking? Drink a little rosé. A New Zealand rosé.
3: Nice. How about you? Anna? I too will not tell you exactly the brand I'm drinking of a brandy because I don't want to advertise. They haven't paid for any kind of advertising on our session, so it's just. I don't brandy. mind it. I got a
2: local, <laughs> uh, a local brew, Twelve Star Session Ale from Stone City Kingston. It's yummy. Shameless, shameless. How
0: about you, Jason? What do you? I'm gonna
1: have a West Avenue cider soon, but right now I have Oakville vodka. My God, this
0: is precisely every one of our personalities. We literally picked the alcoholic beverage that matches our personality. Clearly, the sophisticated one. Clearly. (laughs) The small town beer drinker butler. Philbic, the elder statesman drinking hard oak. God knows what type of alcoholic beverage. It's a cognac. Hard
3: hard liquid leverage. Trying to get my nitric oxide in me. And then the
0: CCO drinking water. Fantastic. (laughs) Safety (laughs) boy. Safety
3: boy. I got to fix my hair. There we go.
0: All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, today we're trying something out. We're going to do some live sessions every Friday for a little while to talk about topics du jour that seem interesting to us and try to bring some of the internal conversations we have with this crew to everybody else, and hopefully we'll have some future visitors that can pipe in and join the conversation either through the chat or we might even bring them in with their video. Who knows? It might be, uh, it might go in many different directions. Really? For those of you, I know, go ahead,
3: Mike. The idea stems from the fact that through history, through hundreds of years of trading markets, generally those trading markets took place in either cafes and then evolved to bars. And then the after conversations that occurred in those watering holes, once those markets moved to areas where they traded at, whether those be in the pits in Chicago or New York and what have you, there was a good discussion about how one might approach the problem of investing or speculating or however you want to look at that particular problem. And I think this conversation is a way in, in the current paradigm of having those conversations with people in remote locations while we're sequestered. we loosening up
0: a bit with the uh, with liquid courage so that we can actually say what we really feel rather than what we want to market. Because we're also
3: shy. Yeah. Well, that's the way it was done.
0: You know, I think Mike and Adam are pretty visible on Twitter and uh, a lot of the marketing that we've done. But I think Jason, you've been in one of our podcasts before, Jason Russell. Yep. Um, Why don't you just give everybody here an introduction where you came from quickly and and then we can move on to the conversation du jour.
1: Yep, I've been in the investment business for about 30 years, started in the early 90s in the equity derivatives group at Bankers Trust, moved from there into the advisory business in Canada, always very interested in alternatives, portfolio construction, asset allocation, etc and always had a very strong interest in futures. And there wasn't really much in the way of futures managers in the early nineties. But uh, basically through time, through the advisory side, worked my way into starting Acorn uh, Global Investments, which uh, was one of the larger CTAs here in Canada for many years. And i have worked closely with you guys for a long time. And as you guys know, a few years ago, it made a whole lot of sense for us to amalgamate and get together and, and join the group. So that's a real quick uh, rush through history. Awesome.
0: Awesome. So you know a thing or two about crisis alpha tail protection and the topic that we want to kind of chat about today.
1: Crisis alpha, alternatives, tail protection, and running a business in this uh, wild and wacky industry of ours.
2: Yes. Actually, it'd probably be useful to hear Jason's story about how his futures fund performed in 2008. Like what was that experience like for people in the trend future space and how does that inform how people interpret or think that they should use trend futures in
1: portfolios? Yeah. And I think I can compare that to what we've just experienced in the last few months as well. In 2008, sort of the shot across the bow first happened in September, August really of 2007. And throughout 2008, the equity markets began to roll over and begin to lose momentum, which for a trend investor is optimal. We've got time to react, respond, get positioned. And by spring 08, we're certainly quite short equities and we're in a great position through the fall. I happen to be working with a large number of equity managers and long short equity managers and hedge guys. And the strategy performed extremely well through very tough times. It was very gratifying from a strategy perspective and terrifying from a corporate perspective, just uh, because all the other funds were uh, going through extreme pressure as was everybody, Uh, many of the other funds were focused on small cap equities and more edgy, if you will, equity ideas. So in the end, uh, basically I, that, that's what caused me to kind of spin out and hang out my own shingle. But that period, as it compares to this period, where we saw strong, steady markets, all of a sudden drop in a matter of days and weeks. Very different environment for a trend manager. It basically shone light very clearly on what sort of parameter set you might be using when you're looking back at trend. What is trend you need to understand generally, is can be defined by looking at a time period is it short is it long is it average of a bunch of them in the end everyone's got some exposure to time so a large a big disparity in results from extremely positive performance to devastating result in the 2020 so very very different the approach like all others has its time to shine and it's about putting all that together and today we're looking at tail risk which is kind of out on the end of the spectrum and is it something we should be thinking about and considering where does it fit in the mix
0: well it's certainly the strategy that has gotten the most fanfare in this period right if you if you see true tail protection strategies in play then you had a massive win over the last couple of weeks well for a, for a few days maybe maybe a week or so after and now that's the big conversation now right
1: yeah Futures was a star in 08 and then it's run into the toughest long-term challenge of in a very long time. So you wonder whether anyone's going to care about tail protection eight, nine years from now. Who knows? Everyone's going to pour into it for the next year. <laughs> we'll see. But it does prompt the question about
2: what is tail protection? How would, should you define it? How should you define success, like a successful strategy, ex post from the perspective of how well it protected against tail events? There's different types of tail events that unfold over different horizons. And just speaking of trend, if you simulate, I actually, I did this recently, but you sort of simulate a thousand perfectly reasonable, diversified, long, short futures trend strategies and overlook back horizons from sort of one month out to a little over a year. And depending on how you define them or specify them, but half of them had a really nice positive response to The tail event in 2020 and about the other half had very strong negative response. And a lot of it has to do with the type of option-like profile you're trying to create with the trend strategy. So there's lots of grist for the mill and how to think about trend and the trend impulse as a proxy or trying to imitate different types of option profiles and what that looks like over the short and long term.
0: What's interesting about that work that you did is that you can also look at a wide variety of public CTAs, look at their how, how well they did over the last two months and see that same type of dispersion. But the topic of tail protection in the way that I think people imagine it, which is this long-term put protection that's gonna be there, that's gonna cost you money, almost like an insurance premium, and then when you need it the most, is gonna be there to really offset losses and more than anything ends up being the S&P, right? Because that's where you have the most liquidity. The problem with analyzing how well tail protection strategies did, so I'm not talking about CTAs here. I'm talking about the idea of these option-based tail protection strategies is that a handful of them have shown public results, but it's very tough to discern who won here, who did well, who blew up, who didn't get the right parameters right. And even if you want to model it up, doing it with options ends up being very, very difficult. Right. So it continues to be kind of this obscure strategy where everybody that I talk to likes the idea of it, but very few people like to pull the trigger on it because it happens to be offered by, let's say, one manager with a unique set of parameters, but they don't necessarily trust those parameter sets, So they need to aggregate a bunch of these to even feel comfortable. And it's not as systematic as the type of people that we talk to like to be. And so it's just a tough strategy to really wrap your mind around.
2: And behaviorally to stick to. I mean, you really were at the forefront of trying to get private clients to stick with a strategic allocation to these types of funds, you know, around 2008 and after. So actually, that story is really interesting. You should share it.
0: Yeah, well, we. I was always, everybody I think that has listened to our podcast before knows that I had a, an interesting formative experience in Peru and, you know, hyperinflation blow up, money lost by the family and so on that led to a constant paranoia of these tail events. And so positioning for myself and my clients into 2008 was very much into CTAs and tail protection strategies like those. As I built up a bigger book, I sourced and found a legitimate like permanent tail protection strategy. And it was one of these where you add a one or 2% of your client's portfolios in these strategies they're going to try to put together an options strategy that is going to be as long lasting as possible. But inevitably, that one or 2% would need to fade out into nothing. It was it was a unitized product, right? So it wasn't buying directly. It wasn't separately managed accounts. This is across a private wealth book. So that fund unit that you bought for clients would eventually go to zero. And then you'd have to re-up.
2: Well, you'd buy a series, right? You'd buy a series in the fund And over some time period, it would decay to zero, and then you'd have to re-up.
0: And re-up. We did that for a few years,
2: right? How do clients react to that?
0: Well, it was just, at first, everybody bought in. It makes total sense in the long term, right? If you compare this with your long positions, yes, it'll hurt, but not if you actually look at it as a unit. But the problem is that nobody looks at it as a unit, right? And so it became untenable. It became an impossible thing to hold for clients without constantly having to be on the phone and reiterating the value of it. And sadly, it was it just never saw the light of day, it never got the opportunity to shine, even though the narrative was it'll take ten years before we see this work. But when it works, it'll be there for you. Right.
2: Mike, notwithstanding the economic arguments for or against a strategy like this, why is it so difficult for clients to stick with this for the long-term? And I mean, we've had a couple of interesting blowups recently with CalPERS pulled their allocation to this type of tailhead strategy just in advance of the recent crisis. One of the pension plans in Alberta, same thing. So it's not just retail investors that struggle with committing to a long-term allocation here. What are the big bugaboos behaviorally that make this so difficult to stick with?
3: I think that's um, the confirmation of your peer group. Is a huge part of this. If, as Jason, you alluded to, if people do pile into tail hedge protection strategies, it legitimizes the fact that you're there with a company. This is indicative, I think, of a, of a complex dynamic system, which we come back to theoretically why, if the efficient market hypothesis were to actually be true, soup to nuts, from zero to 100, then there is no need for any tail hedge protection strategy. And so if we accept that markets are, this is a feature, not a bug. Markets are efficient through some periods of time. And then they go through periods of time of, you know, sort of these rapid adjustments. How should we deal with those rapid adjustments? And theoretically, if we, if we say, okay, we agree that it's a feature, not a bug. These rapid price changes will occur and we have to have something in, the stra- in our suite of strategies that deals with that. The next question is how many of our peers accept that as truth and are willing to engage in that? And so behaviorally, you can go through a period of time of 10 or 15 or 20 years, as long as the collective memory of the market uh, fades to a point of forgetting. And then only the few that were able to have the rigor to withstand the performance drag are the ones who can stick to the process of of buying the insurance. And so there's a couple of feedback loops there that are really, really tough, right? So you're a particular manager, whether it's for a retail client or for an institutional client, your strategy has been a drag on their overall performance and their job depends on that performance. And that drag can be a decade long.
0: It was also in the face of the popularity of being shortfall for the last three years, right? Yeah. Immense pressure on the institutional side to take up the short ball trade. Immense pressure even on the retail side. So not only are you saying, hey, no, that's a bad idea. I don't want to get that juicy return from a behavioral perspective. You're also saying, and you'd be better off losing a
3: little bit instead. Precisely. And if your friends aren't losing, if your peer group is not engaging in that same trade, then de facto you look dumb or you underperform. However you want to talk about that particular instance of underperformance that's how you are perceived
1: it's fraught with behavioral challenges and among them also just the complexity of executing on something like this we've all been observing these ideas for a while and you know it started out with puts you can uh, delta hedge or gamma scalp however you want to call it of all products like vix and variance futures dedicated short sellers credit default swaps All of these things have varying elements of liquidity. There's no real consensus as to, yep, this is the way to do it. And we're all trying to find what's the least expensive way, which typically is also the least liquid way. And then the other wild card is, you know, we're all looking at things like the S&P 500 and when it bounces back, like it has in the last few weeks, people think, well, what do I need tail protection for? How would I have timed the exit? There's a lot of moving parts.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like this is why I love to map this to an insurance metaphor, right? Where you sort of have, imagine you live on an Island and the Island has on average through the centuries gotten a hurricane once every 20 years. And you decide that you're going to buy a home there and you're going to buy hurricane insurance and you pay whatever it is, a thousand bucks a month. So 12,000 bucks a year on hurricane insurance. And there's no hurricanes for five years. And you know, but you continue to renew your policy, you pay the hurricane insurance. You know, another five years goes by, there's a hurricane, right? You've given up twelve thousand a year in after-tax income while your neighbors are out using that for an extra vacation. They put in an addition on the house, they've got a nicer car. You've paid all this insurance. And so How long do you continue to pay this insurance while your neighbors are reaping the benefits of the excess cash flow? And there's only like it takes a really safety oriented or long term oriented person to continue to pay that cost in the face of the month to month and day to day realized disadvantage that's right in your face. You've got a smaller house, you've got fewer vacations, and you get a less fancy car. And you look stupid for
1: decades. The responsible guy loses. Yeah. And the reality is, is our, our cost just been our taxes? Because <laughs> the taxes are paying off in a lot of cases right now for the risks that the responsible would, would pay for. Who knows?
3: That's another tangent. Two things come to mind on that. One is thinking about it as insurance and looking at Wimbledon and how Wimbledon has paid for something like 10 or 15 years of insurance for the potential for a COVID issue and actually is collecting a massive benefit from that because they were able to just cancel Wimbledon and they received their payment, but they forwent, I think it was $2 million a year was their premium for it's maybe seven or 17 memory. There's a seven in there somewhere. So kudos to them for paying for that insurance and incorporating that into the profit margin of the business and thinking about that as a legitimate outcome. Maybe uh, Bill Gates is on their board or something. The other thing that's so interesting about this, as you describe it, Adam, the hurricane on an island And some islands have mandated that you must pay for insurance. So now we have the hockey helmet issue. Right. I don't know if you remember the behavioral study. I do,
2: and I love this. Really good analogy.
3: So if you ask hockey players, hey, helmets help you, they protect you, and the visors and whatnot, hockey players will say, no, it's a competitive disadvantage. When I'm on the ice, I have a disadvantage. So unless you legislate the helmet and the visor to equalize the playing field for safety of all then you will have these uneven competitions where people choose to just forego to have those extra vacations that you talked about, to have that extra lifestyle or whatever the case may be, to win some short-term mandates in the institutional framework. And so on islands like Grand Cayman, it's not an option. You must pay for your hurricane insurance. It is law. Thus, all players, to make the bring the analogy full circle, all players must wear visors and helmets. And everybody must figure out how to play competitively within that framework. So let's extend that metaphor, Mike. How could you create policy? For
2: example, you know, introduce it to ERISA policy or pension policy, you know. What sort of policies could you enforce or introduce to mandate some kind of risk management and force everybody to have to take, pay some kind of cost for this type of insurance? In the asset management field.
3: Wow. So- Is it worth it? Is there- <laughs> <laughs> that is the question, Adam. Adam you could totally the, do it. That's the question. So, so I, I think you can. But
2: I'll give an example. Yeah. Like you could, for example, legislate that there's a penalty or you violate regulations if you take greater than a 20% shortfall on your pension assets in a single month or something like that. I mean, obviously- I just threw it out there. So this obviously requires more thought than than just this. But that type of policy and enforcement would force people to think about what the best way to pay for and probability weight that type of outcome.
3: Certainly, you'd probably place limits on leverage too, right? Because even when you allow this infinite leverage in portfolios, the, the market becomes more efficient, but it becomes less stable. I think you'd have to approach it from a full market perspective. So there's an over... An overarching body that decides what the guidelines and, and limits are on all of these things in order to ensure that the system itself can operate and i think we've talked over rod you, you have a couple points you've been trying to get in No, i
0: just so, think that it's a the, the whole idea of insurance can you guys hear me okay yeah yeah the, the whole idea of insurance is a good analogy because you're saying you're paying a little bit in order to get something else right but the truth is depending on when this whole tail protection thing started it was this idea of buying a put option right 10% out of the money, 20% out of the money. Like that has a real cost that's not the same as an insurance. When I pay my life insurance or my home insurance, it is a tiny fraction of the cost of my what I receive from, working, from you know, working stiff. When you look at the cost of varying types of tail protection, they can account for as much as 12% of your annualized rate of return. I think one of the first things that we did back in the day showed that a naive put option strategy costs that much yearly. What's difficult about it is that the ones that really do work, the ones that are permanently there, the whole idea of tail protection is that you have to be there, right? You can't predict it's going to happen, and if you're not there, you're not getting paid, right? Well, those ones are really expensive, so you have to get fancy and and try to finance them using straddles and and strangles and stuff like that. But the others – so that didn't sell. That didn't sell. For the longest time, it didn't sell, right? Because there wasn't – that analogy of insurance didn't play because it was way more expensive than insurance. So then you get into, okay, maybe we don't do that permanent thing. Maybe we play more of the dynamic ball game. And and this is where the narrative has shifted shifted to for tail protection strategies. Where in that first week of February, March, they didn't pay, right? Because they weren't positioned to pay. Only after the, the weeks, the couple of weeks after, when they finally positioned themselves in to really benefit from a tail protection push, did they actually pay out. But there's no way to have it's a small insurance premium without taking some directionality. So even the successful, the ones that have lasted this long for the last five, 10 years have had to take directional bets and not really had a full-on tail protection strategy in place. And so this is where it becomes complicated to choose a tail protection manager, right? Which one has the right speed by which they're going to get into the trade and also ones that aren't going to cost me a lot of money for while I wait to get paid.
2: Well, there's also the, just to proceed with the insurance analogy, there's also the deductible, right? So you can imagine the further out of the money that your protection kicks in, then the cheaper it is to buy, but then the larger the loss you need to take before you get any insurance payout. And so you've got all these nonlinearities. For example, imagine the recent sell-off had only caused the market to drop by 19.9%. And you had all these 20% out of the money put buyers. Well, those 20% out of the money put buyers, well, those 20% of the money puts are a little cheaper than the 10% out of the money puts, right? They're more expensive than the 30% out of the money puts. So you've paid a lower premium over the years, but also you needed a greater than 20% loss in order for that to kick in. What if it was a greater than 25% or greater than 30%? Now you've got way more gamma, the further out of the money you go. So the more of a hero you look like if you happen to own puts that were further out of the money, but the probability that the market actually drops that far in a period of time that triggers that payoff is unmeasurably small, right? So there's all these nonlinearities combined with the fact your N can be counted on only a few fingers on one hand so that it all ends up being completely random and just completely random luck. How far did the market fall over what time horizon? That's going to dictate that a few guys who happen to be positioned for that exact type of environment won the lottery. Everybody else that was hedging different types of tails looked like morons. And 99.9% of investors can't differentiate between luck and skill.
3: Well, I think your last comment is bang on like the ability to differentiate is really, really tough. I think it, some of this stems from the point of how do you want to hedge that potential left tail, right? So there are, there are a couple of ways to do that. One is adaptability. One is building and resilience in the portfolio. So resilience could be built in with the diversity of asset classes, the way you access the beta from the various asset classes. So do you incorporate all asset classes? Do you use factors in those asset classes? When you build those asset classes, do you use something like more defensive stocks in order to source that beta? And then adaptability, how much would you adapt to the various circumstances in the shorter term? What's the quickness that you would respond to that? So so it goes beyond just a put type strategy and a tail hedge protection. And so so I just wanna add that color to that discussion because I know you guys are talking more specifically about-
2: No, it's a really important point, Mike. And it points out something that we we sort of threw out in the beginning, but never asked you to find. Like what is tail? What tail are we protecting, right? Is it a That's weekly, a very important point. Is it a point. daily tail? Is it weekly frequency tail? Is it monthly? Is it quarterly? And depending on the type of tail
1: you want to protect, often need a completely different type of strategy to protect it. Yeah, you can argue certainly 5%, 10 15%, 25% is not a tail at all. Let's just draw it. Yeah,
3: it's, well, it's a feature. It's a feature of markets.
1: Do we manage that with diversification? And at what point do we yeah. begin to include a tail? And, and that, again, it gets hard.
0: That is the that is the important point there.
3: Well, it, this becomes behavioral now, right? It becomes behavioral. The influence of what your peers are doing based on what they're perceiving as what a tail is, which I think is probably a, a non-stationary, a changing perception in the marketplace. Yeah, you're only a
2: winner or a loser relative to your peer group, right? It doesn't, nobody in the asset management or very, very few people in the asset management business actually care about absolute results right? It's how did my pension fund do relative to my peer pensions? How did my endowment do relative to the other endowments that I mark against? How did my clients' portfolios perform relative to the people that my clients are going to be speaking with at their next cocktail party? These are the only things that matter. The absolute results take a far back seat until you get into periods like 2008 or 2000, 2003, where you actually have a middle-class that is genuinely hurting and unable to make ends meet and people are losing jobs. And that's when the absolute level of wealth losses begin to kick in. But 95% of the time, it's a relative game. And the only thing that matters is relative status.
3: And that's the behavioral aspect that is just... It makes it really difficult,
0: right? This is why, I mean, what Jason said was key is how much do you want to be different here, right? Because even... There's been a bunch of S&P plus tail attempts over the years. And what they're coming out with now is like, look, this S&P plus tail outperformed S&P. Yeah, but from point A to point B it did. But <laughs> there were many years where that tail protection strategy not didn't underperform by one or two, but it took away 5 percentage points in a single year, right? Yep. It's not there's no alignment. They don't have the alignment that people think they're getting. They think they're getting, it's going to cost you 1% a year, but sometimes it's going to cost you five. Sometimes you're going to get three. So that one b- makes it even more difficult to really stick to. You got a question, why hasn't there been a massive uptake in these tail protection strategies plus a portfolio? And it's because maybe, just maybe, better diversification does the job, right? Maybe the diversification, that uh, better portfolio construction, does a better job from point A to point B, maybe.
3: And and that's a discussion that needs to be had. Well, I think both of those are true. <laughs> you do, they are true until you get a liquidity crisis. A liquidity crisis then creates all kinds of issues for everybody, we saw that, you know, so sort of whatever it was, mid, mid-March, where even the things that should be responding well to the shock were being sold off. I mean, it was a liquidity issue potentially call that a solvency issue versus a credit issue. And so you need the the lender of last resort to step in. Now we get into an area of the central bank has to be the lender of last resort, but they have to pretend that they're not. And they have to hold it out to the world that they won't be till they have to be, but they're not. Right? It's (laughs) it's a game of chicken. We're not, but of course we will be because the system can't collapse upon itself,
1: but we're not, but we are, (laughs) but we're not. (laughs) It's a prince's bride. As an asset manager, I wonder about including a strategy like this, like a true tail. Is that better left in the hands of the client to decide? So you parse this off separately? Or should asset managers be looking to include tail strategies in their portfolios? It's a really
2: good question. There's two dimensions to that answer that I've given quite a bit of thought to, right? One of them is behavioral. So, you know, if you don't have a line item on your investment statement that shows that this instrument has gone down for 80 months in a row and you had to continue to re-up. And like eventually investors just get sick of looking at a losing investment over and over again, month after month. And that's the quality of a lot of pure tail hedges is that they tend to just be constant money losers that you kind of actually, most people kind of hope they don't even end up paying off, right? You hope that you never have to go through a crisis period. You're just going to continue to pay this Premium, it's like paying life insurance.
3: You don't want to die. It's Wimbledon. It's it's Wimbledon. Wimbledon never wanted to have the COVID pay off. That's not right. And if you approach it like that, I think that's a key to having the framing around the mental allocation that you can withstand the drag. It helps. It helps for sure. I don't
2: think, I mean, demonstrably, it's not sufficient, right? Because most clients cannot- On mass, with 100%. good framing, they cannot stick with it. So behaviorally, it's better to have it inside another investment where you can sort of cloak or mask the constant decay.
3: bunch of sci-fi nerds here, just yeah, ones cloaking.
1: That's right. It's like a, it's a cloak of
2: invisibility <laughs> <laughs> on the losses that investors just don't see. Like it's opaque to them. Right. So there's from the behavioral standpoint, I think it makes a big difference. Also, from a financial standpoint, I think it makes a really big difference because if you build a tailhead strategy as a constant capital size sleeve alongside a broader suite of strategies, then what you can do is actually gamma scalp, like you said. So you've got this sort of constant allocation, you're maybe short. So you're selling insurance. Some of the time you're harvesting those premiums. Some of the time you've got the opportunity to flip long, but as you take losses on that, you refund it out of the gains from all of the other strategies in the portfolio. And when you have a payoff from your insurance bet, that payoff immediately goes back into the other fund, so that you're keeping a constant capital exposure to that strategy. And therefore you're actually able to implement a gamma scalping uh, overlay
3: on a give away the magic, but
2: diverse music. basket of strategies, Easy. which is obviously how we've chosen
3: to and implement or, it. We didn't, we didn't do that. I mean, maybe we did, but <laughs> we probably didn't. But we did. <laughs>
2: so I've been told, theoretically,
0: <laughs> because you're dealing with such obscure products, right? When you're trying to find this from a third party manager, when you want that tail protection, you not only want that payoff, but you also want to be able to capture that payoff at the time that you want to capture it. There is an issue with with a lot of these sale protection strategies that are monthly liquidity where you might you might have said, okay, I need this now. But like, sorry, we can't do that. You're going to have to wait 15 days. It's just the whole nature of it is complicated. Even when you, ha- you find good managers, it's tough to get what you need when you want it to. And so that your point of putting that product together in one makes a lot of sense because they're, I imagine, going to do it for you. They can do it internally. Even at that point, having a monthly liquidity is not a problem. But if you're just having that pure tail protection as a separate standalone, it could be complicated, right? It could, it could create issues. You'll never get paid off.
2: You're so right. But what's the flip side? The flip side of that is that now you've got a, a multi-strat strategy that's got a sleeve of the portfolio that may be sucking returns for a decade at a time.
0: Which goes to my point of like, not only sucking returns, but you might have a year where it took away 10%. Maybe over the full 10-year period, it's net neutral. But for that one year, it took away 10% returns. And then when you have to explain why-
3: Yep, tracking error is huge. You're
0: done. Yep.
3: right. It's a big issue. I would add the behavioral side of that is if you're selling to a group where you're suggesting that you're going to take their job is another challenge in that particular issue, right? If now you're saying to a sophisticated institutional endowment board that you're going to do that and they have several people whose job is specifically- to allocate to different strategies and structures and reallocate to them at opportune times to your point rod, which doesn't quite allow them to take advantage of that because it's a month end type thing rather than a moment type issue. And I think this is really important because the discipline that that can bring has tremendous value. If you think about, except this is my premise that financial crises are sort of like earthquakes. They're very hard to predict when they occur, their occurrence is a prelude to other occurrences. Okay. But also if the occurrence happens and more time passes, it's less and less likely that you get another occurrence. So for an earthquake, as an example, you have a major tectonic event. The chances of having another event the next day are very high. They're like 50%, but 10 days later, they drop to 10%. So to your point, if you think about that doesn't, ha- it's not exactly how they work in financial markets, but take that timeline and walk it forward in a, a financial event happens. There's a crisis moment. There's an opportunity to own longer term positive risk premium assets, which may recover by month end. And you only have this monthly fractal from which you can view that particular opportunity. There's lots there that just prevents the market from acting. Yeah, you live on a really- hurricane-
2: um, Not a hurricane belt. What is it? You live on a fault line. Yeah, but you can only evacuate your home once a month. Right.
3: <laughs> Precisely.
2: That's the analog, right? So if it happens intra month, you're kind of screwed.
3: Yep. And this is the other thing I think the hur- that 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 fault line reference is that you only know whose house was built up to specs, like earthquake specs after the earthquake when you look around the neighborhood and you see five houses on the ground and the two houses that are standing then you know and this is the challenge with allocators and investors and those financial intermediaries that are charged with allocating assets that they're going to forego returns in the short term they're going to have less returns over a 10-year period but they're going to say listen your house is earthquake proof and the person is going to say, "But we haven't had an earthquake." Then the earthquake happens. And by
2: the way, your bonus is linked to the four-year moving average of your average alpha. So if you don't have a, an event in that four years, then you're foregoing compensation. Mm-hmm. So there's a massive misalignment of incentives.
3: It comes back to one of our core values that we want to be. We would like to have some sort of connection between the realized risk-adjusted returns for our clients, like that. You know, and so we want to think about making sure that you're there for the returns as they occur. And I think there's where uh, there's another gap or a, a convergence of of how that kind of manifests in portfolios in real time.
0: So, I mean, the debate is really, uh, look, let's look at the AQR and seemed to Teleb debate that's raging right now, right? Let's put aside the pettiness of the actual Twitter discussion. But it is, one is arguing for the amazingness of tail protection, the other side, is saying it's good but by the way diversification is really solid and it may possibly be better versus a naive approach. So which one of those two approaches is is one better than the other? Is there a right or wrong or is it all personality based, right?
2: Well, one of them at least you can kind of sort of wrap your arms around, right? I mean, we all need to acknowledge that even if we've got 40 years of data, maybe that only really captures a handful of different regimes. So maybe 40 years is really an N of five in terms of market state. I'm just throwing numbers around. But at least you've kind of got, you know, it's probably not five. It's probably, I don't know, there's 10 or 15 or something, right? The thing about tail events, like all these tail managers with the thousand percent return plus in March, these guys, there were other mechanisms to deliver Better average returns and better average results and better average diversification for portfolios, even during other tail periods, unless you go all the way back to 1987. Like literally 2000, 2003, 90 to 91, the long-term capital management, Thai bot, Asian crisis, Russian default in, in 98, all of those things were very well managed through Some combination of diversification or trend or other types of strategies that have long term positive expectancy. Really, the only strategies, or sorry, the only periods that were not well managed by those other types of approaches was October 1987 and the recent crisis. And keep in mind, the recent crisis played out twice as fast as 1987.
1: Yeah, it's velocity. Like you know, a lot of tail events here. Exactly. I think the velocity is really, really key, and that's something that's similar in '87 and similar in just in the last couple of months. If the same depth was reached over even just double the number of days, I think you'd see a dramatically lower bump here. No, Jason, it and would completely back reorder the, the. It would completely
2: yeah. reorder the winners. The guys that won this time would have looked like morons and a whole other group of people would have looked like heroes. And it would would have been purely due to randomness.
0: Well, who's saying that it's a CTA or a tail protection strategy? I, I honestly think that there is, I think you need to have a certain type of personality. You, Adam, need to wrap your mind around that stuff. You need to have all these data points. You need to, I don't, I, I understand tail. I understand the benefit of having a lot of convexity, positive convexity when I need it in a way that CTAs that were midterm to long-term just didn't have, and, and we all knew wouldn't have in a big correction like this. They would eventually adjust, right? And so I, I honestly think that there is a place for this for a lot of people's portfolio, just not everybody's portfolio. And I'm one of the guys that likes to have that near certainty, although there's, we can have a discussion about what tail we're, we're trying to protect against, right? We are talking about the S and P here, but there's a lot of tails that we need to think about as well, right? Could be bond tail risk and all that stuff. But from the perspective of is it valuable? It's insanely valuable for certain people that can take the, the medium-turn
2: hit. How do you even create a strategy? You can absolutely create a tailhead strategy that protects against a very specific type of tail. You can even have a basket, an ensemble of tailhead strategies. But the ensemble will still only protect against a certain shape of tail, a certain magnitude of of loss in a specific market or group of markets over a very specific time horizon. It's just a shape.
0: Why do you say that?
2: Well, you can't hedge against every risk. Hedging against every risk like demonstrably delivers no returns over the long term.
3: Well, it probably has a significant cost, actually.
0: I see, I see. So I was thinking about the S&P 500 collapsing. You create an ensemble of managers that can actually... We'll have different parameters and will respond faster, slower deal with these different convexities and provide value on average for that particular S&P 500 event, right? Which I think has merit that the whole idea of the equity markets.
2: But what you're missing is that there's a shape to that, whatever the hedge ensemble you've created has its own shape. That is an optimal event that will work for that specific hedge portfolio. And if it's not that specific shape of event, but but that applies you'll to have paid a lot of premium everything that you for do for the
0: rest of your portfolio right doesn't not it doesn't mean that one. you shouldn't try it
2: except that most of them have positive expectancy whereas tail hedge definitionally the closer you get to shorter term hedge the closer you get to approximating a long put strategy the closer you get to negative expectancy short term trend like ultra short term trend demonstrably has negative expectancy But killed it in March. It did great in March after like 10 years of negative return.
3: This is the craftsmanship that that also understands social influence of what is the market of choice today in the current zeitgeist. And that social influence is that what what are portfolio managers most concerned about? And I'll just I'll turn it over to you, Rod, and you can take it from there.
0: Okay. So the social aspect is whether you can withstand being different from your neighbors, right? I think I had this conversation with uh, Chris Schindler over drinks from uh, ex-teachers. I think we had him on the podcast. We did have him on the podcast. And our conclusions are the same. If you want to use tail protection strategies that you can count on, you're going to have to take a return hit but you won't suffer f- from those big gaps that you see when equity markets collapse. And the thing about equity markets collapsing that are, that's unique is that it tends to coincide with economic markets collapsing. It tends to coincide with liquidity across everything drying up. So it's a good proxy to want to tail hedge against, right? As we were facing the abyss during this particular period, there were nights where we were like, oh my God, shit, are we gonna wake up tomorrow and it's gonna be 30% down?
3: It was the market closures too. Potential. Yeah,
0: it was like the only thing that will protect. If everything, if it's a liquidity event, doesn't matter whether you own bonds or gold or stocks, if it's a liquidity event, the only thing that's going to be there are these preset tail protection type strategies, right?
2: Really? So your put strategy on the S and P and ES futures are closed over option expiration. What's your payoff?
3: Yep. Very okay. point.
0: Well, that is a very specific type of event. I'm talking about the most likelihood, which we've seen over and over again in these type of periods.
2: So now we're talking about probabilities. We're talking about the probabilities of tail events. Well, we're talking do about not, the craftsmanship and social
3: go there. influence and yes. what people care about. But I think you have to take all of these issues into consideration.
0: That's a very personal thing.
2: The worst possible outcome is you've paid all this insurance and you actually don't pay off.
3: Correct. I don't think either one of you are wrong.
1: <laughs> I think you're, bo- you're both right. Beyond tail risk, we've all heard this before. Well, if that goes, we're all screwed. So there's there's a there's a point where things bend and they break, and we arguments
0: you mean arguments yeah, specific arguments, arguments.
1: And, and everything. <laughs> so when something breaks, then it's like ah, can't hedge against that anyways. And you can argue tails up close to that. And look at what happened to the crude, to the futures market in, in the last few weeks going negative in crude. And I recall from 2008, uh, counterparties blowing up all over the place, like massive high quality counterparties, the rating agencies, AAA meant nothing. So there's a whole bunch of that risk that gets introduced at a time when you're expecting the tail to pay off. So I think understanding where the tail is, is important. And where is that other point beyond tail where we're all screwed anyways happens. I think I don't
3: know the answer. Well, I would posit that's where central banks come in to be the lender of last resort and provide the liquidity. They're in way before that. This is really (laughs) an interesting question because they are timing their influence in order that they're not perceived to have been there. But their job is to prevent total financial collapse. It's kind of in their mandate to be that lender of last resort and I think that's what they learned in the 29 episode, letting depositors and banks go bankrupt. And those bank depositors weren't really risk takers. And so that they've been emboldened, obviously, by the process of long term capital management or well, 1987, leading into long term capital management, leading into the 2008 crisis, leading into the current crisis. I think they've been emboldened more and more to take earlier and more extreme action. And that's just a function of the market getting used to that. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't don't know, but I think- Oh no, the next time we look at crisis in the teeth,
2: markets are going to rally massively in anticipation of an overreaction (laughs) by central banks. This is the new tail. The new tail is a spike higher. Is that what's happening now?
0: Possibly. You're talking to a particular personality that has seen massive blowouts in his personal life that I will always be willing to give up the upside any given year to make sure that if the market doesn't just drop 20 in a single day but drops 80 because that's who I am I want something to be there that has the possibility of paying out that nothing else can be if it's li- cuz it'll be a liquidity event
2: and I think a lot of clients would agree with you but what we've observed is that people agree in theory as the conversation occurs in the beginning and as months go by and you get months after months after months of losses That argument, people feel that they hate this line item. They feel it, and therefore, they're looking for any excuse to sell it, and you end up fighting an uphill battle.
0: Can I be honest? I don't think I, and you guys, because you guys were part of it for a bit, I don't think you and I did a good enough job at educating. And I think a lot of what we've done with our followers, our client base, with the books, is we've educated them to do better and care less about the s and I mean, nobody that deals with us that has been successful cares about what the S&P does in any given day. We did that through education. And I just don't think you've had enough of an, Or I think you need to make more of an effort in order, if you're gonna do a tail protection strategy, to make sure that the clients that you're attracting stick to it by making sure that we're constantly pounding the table on the reasons that you signed up for it. And understanding also the downsides, right? Understanding that you will not have a better return necessarily over long periods of time as you would if you didn't have the tail protection in place. Yes, it's a fair point. We can do education.
3: This is the challenge, Rod. This is totally 100% the trade-off. So you go through 10 years and you have your 10-year track record that underperforms your peer group by one and a half to 2% based on your tail protection strategy. And the next gap in the performance reporting is not 11 years, it's 15. And so the last crisis happened 15 years ago where you can show the payoff, but if it didn't, if it happened between year 10 and 15, there is no indication that you have any expertise in this field. I do agree that is an educational thing. And and the whole concept of tail protection comes back to a, you have to go back to first principles and think about it from a theoretical perspective so that you can come to a conclusion of belief. And that conclusion of belief has to be higher than the potential... Reality checks along the way, which are going to question your ability to stick with the freaking the program. And this is this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where it's really tough. It's um, it's 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 a lot of behavior.
0: There's going to be a lot of people willing. There's going to be a lot of converts.
2: Just like everybody flocked into trend strategies in 2009. I agree. Where is the man AHL fund here in Canada? The now? question is, <laughs> oh, you know, you didn't.
0: That served me really well in 08, by the (laughs) by, just because you bought it after.
3: (laughs) Listen, you and the other four people that were in it, Rod, like you and those four guys did great. (laughs) Okay, It's the same
2: thing for the strategy with the tail protection fund. You're going to look really smart once every 10 or 12 years. Unfortunately, when the tail hits, you've got no assets because you've underperformed your benchmark by two and a half percent a year for 10 years.
0: So this provides an opportunity. Look, the the world has changed a ton over the last 10 years, right? Look at what we're doing right now, right? We're evolving. We've gone from from written (laughs) podcasts to books, to audio, now video, right? We're going to invite people in. People are empowered to learn more. So I have to, I have a tendency to look at at the bright side to see that there is actually better than what we've seen in the past from clients, from investors, from just human beings generally. We're better educated than we've ever been before. Everybody's jumping on the tail protection bandwagon right now. And a lot of the rhetoric is, yeah, but nobody will stick to it, right? We started with this conversation in the beginning of this podcast. I believe that we are better equipped now than ever, though for those who jumped in the bandwagon, to keep as many of those people in the bandwagon long-term, if indeed it suits them for their long-term benefits.
3: That's what I strongly believe. Just to be understanding of a complex... adaptive system, the more people that jump on this, the the less less effective it's going to be.
0: The more cost it's going to be. Cost can
3: actually shrink, but the less effective it would actually be because there is a whole bunch of buying at some point in the market to cover off those pseudo shorts that happen. So corrections become, it's a self-reinforcing
1: cycle until it's not.
0: Oh, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to buy tail protection until 10 years.
1: (laughs) You know, it's beyond tail. I think just thinking about like just risk management period has a big cost, even just asset allocation, forget tail at all. Very good point. So even with a 15 or a 12% drawdown, anyone who's trying to manage risk by allocating to bonds saved investors in the heart in the teeth of this. They saved them some real money and lost them that in, in the recovery sometimes. But that's all looked at in a short-term lens, and a lot of people, obviously, with recency bias, that's where they live, looking at the last three months, or and in this case, three months can make a one-year number look dramatically different. Or a 10-year,
2: in the case of the the real tail hedge, guys.
1: A lot of tactical managers right now are underperforming the S&P over the last month. Actually, this is a really good point, because what is a tail for a tactical manager? Who the hell's right? I actually think it's not the worst idea to be underperforming right now, guys. Like If there's another leg down, which there may very well be, You're in a much better place now. Hey, the first immediate snap hurt. That's not a typical depth tail event. That was a velocity event, if you want to call it. It's a risk management.
0: We're hitting that 66% Fibonacci
1: level. We're (laughs) hitting it,
2: boys. (laughs) Uh, It's a really good point though, Jason, on what is a tail event for different types of managers. Obviously for managers who are mostly, their risk budget is mostly equity beta, then the tail event is a major drop, like a short-term drop in equity beta. But for a tactical manager or managers that vol size, for example, the big tail event for those managers has been the V-shaped recovery that we currently experienced, right? Lots of strategies that use trend or or vol sized had very, very little exposure come mid-March. That... Second sort of 15% drawdown in stocks, trend followers didn't experience, risk parity didn't experience, but you know, 60-40 experienced. But now those strategies are positioned, they've got a very high bond position, they've got a low equity beta, and you've got a V-shaped recovery. So the tail in mid-March for a lot of strategies was to the upside. So, different strategies need to think about hedging different types of tail risks, and those tail risks are highly conditional.
0: Yeah. And look, to be fair, I, when I speak to prospective clients and I tell them about the fact that we try to minimize tail by being diversified, both in asset allocation and strategies and so on, I do say, like, if you're the type of guy that can handle X amount of loss, that tends to be directional in nature, the equity markets losing money, then you might want to consider adding a tail protection strategy on top of this and explain to them that they, they're going to probably lose a little bit of the benefit that they would get, the return that they would get from being just focusing on diversification, taking your lumps, right? Like a lot of tactical managers took a hit, but they didn't take the last hit. Right. But they also didn't recover from here. Uh, that last hit, I've explained that to clients. And they're like, oh yeah, I can take the first leg as long as the second or third leg doesn't happen. That's kind of what tactical managers have done for the most part, right? The problem is that we haven't seen a second or third leg happen for 10 years. And so it's a difficult pill to swallow, but the choice is clear. I would say 90% of them didn't take my advice of taking a table protection strategy. The other 90% just said, like, I want the long-term returns and I'm okay with taking that first hit. That insurance, what did you call it? Not not the premium, but the, The the deductible. Yeah.
2: Yeah, there's been a lot of deductible payments and very little insurance payouts over the last 12 years.
0: Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, there's been a lot of deductibles being paid.
3: The thoughtful practitioner would sort of understand the bifurcation of thought here, which is, one is that there's an equity risk premium and that's going to be manifest in the long term. And if you're in a taxable account, you might want to take some of your money and just put it there and forget about it. And have a sleeve of that in your portfolio, and then you're going to want to have a sleeve of your portfolio that does these other things, in various ways, uh, covers off the ability to adapt, the ability to be resilient, sort of covers off these other angles, and that that way you're kind of covered by both. You've got some sort of low-cost factor exposure. One of those factors, beta. One of those factors can be value can be a cap size all whatever however you want to look at that and you're just going to hold those for through outside these power law events understanding that that's a feature not a bug and you're going to have another portion of the portfolio call it whatever it is half a quarter two-thirds whatever your risk parameter is that adapts that uses all the various potential ways that you might think about the tail protection but then it has to also rebalance so that between the two, there's actually an extra little bit of advantage that comes from that longer term. It doesn't quite manifest the way people think it does. I think that they probably think that that tailwind is probably bigger than it is. But it, you know, I think a, a thoughtful practitioner at all levels of financial intermediary would want to think about it in that way from an applicability perspective. I don't know what you guys' thoughts on that are.
2: Yeah, I guess it's what are the relative and absolute risks that the client is concerned about, right? Are they concerned about underperforming their local market, the global stock market, a 60 40? Are they concerned about absolute losses versus absolute gains? And I think what we've learned, I mean, we have the benefit of having been advisors and asset managers. And I think one thing we've learned is that client preferences change through time, right? The way that the focal point of investor anxiety when markets are ripping, is on underperformance. The focal point for investor anxiety when markets are dropping is on loss of wealth. So really, if you were to ask most clients, what do you want? Well, I want a a strategy that outperforms on the upside and doesn't take losses. That's the holy grail, right? And if you don't deliver that as an asset manager or an advisor, then you're disappointing, right? Whether they vocalize it or not, you're disappointing clients. And so much of the effort we have made from an educational standpoint is to try to highlight, shine a bright light on the fact that you can't suck and blow at the same time, right? So how can you balance it out the
3: best? And you have to explicitly recognize that someone in Houston, Texas may have a different set of preferences than someone in California. Yep. And that is a real consideration behaviorally in the whole portfolio construction process.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, we've been at it for uh, just over an hour now, guys. I think we covered a lot of aspects of this topic anything that we missed that you guys want to touch upon
2: there's lots of directions we could go but i I think we're better to cap it and save it for next time
0: we might think about bringing in a tail protection practitioner and see if he can defend himself
2: there's nothing to defend i mean i don't i'm not sure where the bones (laughs) of contention are right i mean yeah 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 it may have a place there's room for everybody what boogeyman are you trying to defend against amen and i'm not sure you're willing to pay for protection all
3: right. Excellent. All right. Well, you know, we'll end up having another two-hour conversation after this, and then we'll be like, oh, <laughs> we <probably> <laughs> we I am totally craving another beer. you <laughs> had that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Another two hours to go. I never left the bar at two, five o'clock. Yeah.
0: Guys, I've uh, hung up now. I've hung up. <laughs> Let's actually say what we feel. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Nice first session hopefully we'll try a few of these hopefully bring some people on board and we hope you enjoy it give us some feedback if you did and just keep it to yourself if you don't all right (laughs) perfect
2: (laughs) thanks guys have a great weekend
1: thanks see ya.
0: thank you for listening to the gestalt university podcast you will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast will be helpful to others, We would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.